I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start our show today, a 99-year-old veteran of World War II named George would like her attention for just a moment or two. It's with regard to Talbot House, which was founded as an everyman's club in Poppering during World War One, and is now threatened with closure during the coronavirus crisis. I am George Sutherland. I was born in Poppering in 1921. In uh, 1939, I was uh, 17 then, and the German army invaded Belgium. So I managed to get away through Boulogne Harbour in France and right away I joined the Royal Air Force and I served for six years as a flight mechanic on Mosquito aircraft. And after the war uh, I rejoined the then called Imperial War Gates Commission and I was employed at Lissenhoek Military Seminary for 40 years. And uh, old and young soldiers they all know Talbot House, and that's when they come and visit the place. It's, it's, it's like a home. The, the people come here and they feel home. I wish to, to have a walk from the military seminary to Talbot House in Poplin. So I hope I can do it. Please join me on Facebook and Twitter. Please join me in supporting the old house. And do what you can to keep this warm house open. For more information, please visit www.talbothouse, that's T-A-L-B-O-T, house.be. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Sunday's History Hack. We have been promising you an awesome, awesome, awesome awesome interview um, and we've had so many people going absolutely crazy for this because this is our Hornblower reunion. Uh, we are absolutely thrilled to welcome Yoan Griffiths to the show. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. Thank he you is looking me. disgustingly suntanned and healthy because he's in uh, LA. But we also have, because we can't have Horatio without having Archie. So Jamie Bamber's joining us from London. Hey, Jamie. Hey, how are you? I'm oh, good. So guys, how is lockdown? Do you want the honest truth? <laughs> <laughs> are you enjoying it a bit? Well, look, I was very fortunate. Uh, I just just finished a job or I was five or six days shy from finishing a job in Australia so I was very happy to come home and do nothing and relax and, and be with the family so it's it's um it started off blissful mm. of course and now the sort of the reality of it I think you know is setting in and uh getting that discipline to 
educate my kindergartner or my six-year-old every day has uh, become a bit of an ordeal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. So, hey, you, was that Harrow you were filming? Yes, yes. I was filming season three of Harrow in Australia, yeah. Um, so that'll be the first thing I do once uh, all these... You know, sanctions or whatever are lifted. I'll be going back there to shoot the final five days. Brilliant. Um, I I love that. Lately, you've taken a couple of roles where you're not so nice. Um, and actually, you're a downright gitbagging liar. I was saying that. Um, after series, most of series one, I was torn because I wanted to hate you, but you were so charming, you couldn't. Um, but I'm over that now. I'm three episodes into to season two, and you're horrible. <laughs> How do you do that, it? Uh, How do you play that uh, part? I mean. Look, to, to be honest, it's probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do. The, the second season of Liar, the first season of Liar, I was essentially just being my charming self as much as I could. You know, it was there wasn't really much acting required. It was left to the audience's imagination and and the audience's knowledge of what was going on in, behind the scenes. But season two, he's a man who's on the run, he's desperate, he's uh, in complete disarray, and. Uh, is in complete denial. And I think that was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do. I mean, I, I found myself running off to the corner and crying during the day, you know, mm. after some scenes because I was representing somebody who's just didn't have the grasp of what was actually happening to him. Well, that as um, well. And that scene where he, you see the son in hospital, that was horrible. That, that looked like it was pretty ugly yes. to film. No, yes. am I spoiling yes. you now? Stop, you're spoiling <laughs> it. I have. I'm finished watching this. Stop. Okay, Stop. all right. Let's move on to Jamie. Jamie, how's yes, London yes, lockdown? Yes. <laughs> um, London lockdown's a lot like being an unemployed actor, to be honest. Um, and my life hasn't really changed that much. <laughs> I, I, I sit on the same chair, looking for inspiration and reading, and I walk the dog once a day, go for a nice run. Uh, the difference is I've got my three teenage girls and my wife looking at me while I while I do nothing, and that's the challenge. But <laughs> well, they're judging you now, as in, like, yeah, is this what you do all the time? Well, you know, I'm quite good at, at feeling guilty about doing very little with my life, but um, it's when I look at them, I think I really should be, you know, inventing some wheel that hasn't been invented yet. <laughs> Brilliant. We also have with us today... Um, Kate Jameson, who's a fantastic historian of 18th century naval affairs. Hi, Kate. Hi, how are you? You're down on the south coast, aren't you? I am indeed, although I'm not close enough to the sea that I can actually get to see it, which is disappointing. Can't you now? You can walk there, apparently, if it's... So you can travel to do your exercise as long as your exercise is longer than the journey there or something? Because I can't get away with Brighton because it's 40 miles. But can you get away with the sea? I could get away with probably going to the New Forest and doing a massive bike ride if I did that, but I'd feel a bit cheeky doing it, so I'm trying to stay close to home and be good. What we're going to do, we're going to mix up, um, we have so many questions for you guys, and I've tried to put them in some kind of sensible order um, and failed completely. Um, one thing about coronavirus, actually, I wanted to say is uh, I've adopted this uh, philosophy of what would Horatio do, because he's so sanctimonious <laughs> and so good all the time, that every time I think, I'm going to pop out to the shops, I'm going to go, now what are you going to buy? What would Horatio do? Would Horatio consider this an essential purchase and therefore did you go? Um, and if the answer is no, Horatio would not, then I'm not allowed to go. Horatio would wait outside the shop until everyone else had gone in and bought everything and then knock on the door just as it was shutting and find there's zero bog roll and never was. That's what Horatio Yeah, and leave with like a, an out-of-date loaf of bread to live on. And, and he would not, he wouldn't even bitch about it, would he? 
No, no, no. He, no, he wouldn't happy. complain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's it. From now on, I don't want to hear anyone's complaints, anyone's bitching. I want you to just think, what would Horatio do? And if the answer is Horatio Hornblower would not be complaining right now, then you need to shut up and move on. Um, so I think we, I'm going to get T-shirts made. What would Horatio do? And disseminate them around southwest London. Um, so let's let's start. Um, now I've completely got rid of any professionalism. Let's talk about how you got involved in Hornblower. Um, Johan, I've always wanted to know, was it a case of the people doing Hornblower saw you sink with the Titanic and think, there's our man? Or did it overlap? Was it was like, well, he, if he can survive the Titanic and he was pretty good in that, then I reckon he'll be all right in Hornblower. Well, you know what? There's an interesting story about my first ever meeting with Andrew Grieve, our fantastic director. He and I sat down and he, the first question he asked me was, what have you been doing with yourself these last six months? But please, please, please don't talk about your last job. I hate actors talking about themselves and their last jobs. And I had to take a calculated risk and say, well, actually, I've just come off the biggest movie ever made about a ship. And I know this show was all about a guy on a ship. Um, so I, I went for it and I just told him I was down in Baja, Rosarito, you know, Mexico, um, shooting the Titanic with James Cameron. And of course, he that was it. We just hit it off immediately because he just lapped it up. Any information that I had about how we went about shooting it, he was just, tell me more, tell me more. How did you do this? How did you do that? How did it? So it was, um, yeah, it was one of those moments I thought, yeah, bugger it. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go for it and be honest. I absolutely had to shoehorn Titanic in because it was, it's, I'm a Titanic historian and my friend actually wrote the biography of Fifth Officer Lowe. So she's dead jealous about this interview. But Jamie, how did you come to Hornblow? Um, is it right? It was your first acting job. Yeah, I was at drama school in Lambda in London, and it was not only my first acting job, I think it was my first audition, um, but I hadn't just been on the biggest film ever made, so uh, I was at a disadvantage, because <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I auditioned for Hornblower and did a, did a camera test, um, which something they don't do very much anymore for television, but I wasn't to know any different, I mean, you must have done it too, yo, or not, was it? Yes, yeah, we, yeah, yeah, we tested... Um, a few times, you know, once um, just as a, a regular actor and then in, in full costume and a full garb. Yeah, that's what I did, the yeah. full garb. Um, so yeah. I, for me, it was literally the first, it was the first casting director. I think I went in for a different thing, for a small movie, a contemporary film, and then I was ushered down the corridor <laughs> and met the casting director, John Hubbard, who who lumped this big old wadge in front of me, and I think I was in to see Andrew the same day or something weird, and oh. and read for Hornblower. But I, you know, I, it was all so new to me. And then did the screen test with all the makeup, with actors, with a set. They had a set, <laughs> with, like with ropes lying around, and like. I think they were even, it was, I remember one of the scenes was a scene where you're betting, or Styles is betting on how many rats he can kill with his mouth, and um, and Hornblower tells him off. Uh, Did that ruin right. your ruin you as an actor? Were you expecting that every other audition you went to after Archie? Well, sort of, yeah. I mean, I guess I guess the whole the whole business has changed a bit over the years. Now we just do self tapes in our pants as long as you've got a, <laughs> as long as you've got a t shirt on and your top half's okay, you're fine. That's how we record this it's podcast. Like this, we don't know what I'm wearing. Right? <laughs> 
Um, so now it's all changed. But then I remember doing a couple of full-on costume camera tests where they actually hired people to act with you. It was great. I loved it. It was, it was wonderful. And for me, obviously, I, I, I got this lovely letter not that long afterwards saying um, that they had another role for me. And for me, I was just over the moon. And um, I didn't know what the role was uh, because, obviously, uh, Archie wasn't quite as featured in the stories at that point. But then, yeah. Dream come true, right? You know, I, I had a yeah. job. I was still training, and then uh, just to get this out of the way, because people ask, oh, did do you still hang out and everything? You guys have remained friends ever since, haven't you? Yeah. Yes, we have. We have. Um, well, how yeah, long has it been? I, mean, I, I lived in LA for a long time, so Yo and I would play a lot of golf. Um, he's godfather to one of my little ones, and um, yeah, we're we're very close, although we're separated by many thousand miles these days and I haven't seen each other for quite a while now. It's been a, two or three years. That's been a few years, yes, it has, it has. That's exactly what everyone wanted to hear. They wanted to hear that you love each other. Um, so this is coming from, <laughs> this is coming from someone who just calls himself SNDS. I don't know what it stands for. Um, he says, for both of you, what kind of historical research did you do, if any, for your roles? Were there any specific insights you latched onto? Any specific historical figures you may have used as role guidance? Um, who were they and what affected your performances most? Johan. <laughs> um, well, look, it, it's an interesting process. Uh, every actor is, is different and has uh, his or her unique process. I think for Hornblower, the, the scripts were so strong. I mean, the character really leapt off the page. Um, so most of my research really was getting into the technicalities of, you know, how th- these ships worked. I mean, there's a, there's a great book, um, that I read called Nelson's Navy and it also has an illustrated version of it. So, mm-hmm. um, there's a, Great book about the cross section of a, of a man of war. Um, so because I was on camera every day, all day, uh, you know, learning my craft for the first time, you know, being front and center that way, I, it was what helped me was knowing what the hell I was talking about technically. Um, all those orders that were being barked at me or I was barking at other people. So in terms of, you know, inspiration for the character, the character was already there really. Um, uh, in the script, I mean, clearly, uh, he is loosely based on Horatio Nelson, uh, obviously. Um, but in terms of getting inspired as an actor and getting into the the the, you know, the, the costume and 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 who the, who this character is, I think it was already there on the page. So all the research that I did was um, just understanding what I was saying at any given time. Um, I, I cut this from the questions, but I'm going to chuck it in anyway. Why do you count? Uh, Kate can answer if you can't. Why do you count like two six instead mm. of one two? You count uh, six two or two six instead of counting one two. That you, when you're trying to break into that, um, yeah, battery. Oh yes. Battery. <clears throat> yes, there's like a two six bang. There's yeah, a ramming yeah. of something. That's right. Yes, yeah. Ah. Clearly, I've forgotten my research. (laughs) (laughs) Kate, why is that? um, It's thought, it didn't actually come around till I think the 50s or the 60s, but I don't know where it's come from. I think it might have come from a film of some description, but people used to think it was how the gun crews pulled on the guns together, so it's 2-6 heave, 2-6 heave. Um, The Navy Mm. now use it for tug of war. 
competitions. <laughs> um, and it's, right. very, it's a very effective way of winning a tug-of-war competition if ever you find yourself in one. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> kind of one of those myths that people think of is from the 18th century Navy, but actually I think it starts in the 50s or the 60s, unfortunately. But So we'll just edit this out then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, leave it in, leave it in. Which, which episode was no. that in? Which film was that in? Um, the writer has created committed the anachronism crime <laughs> it's uh, uh, the one where Christian Coulson buggers off and leaves you oh um, that was after me wasn't it? It, yeah it is it's it the, is. the one after you died I'm so glad now I don't feel <laughs> yeah you were off the hook <laughs> well, yeah, I didn't have to know so it. is that it's mutiny <laughs> is it mutiny Kate no, I wasn't there for that one uh, yes, it could be mut- mutiny or retribution. Right? Yeah, it's um, one of those two. Yeah. I wasn't there Yeah, because it definitely involves Wolf and that. He's, um, the, one that. he's the one that's related to the to Hammond, right? The, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Wasn't yeah. there for that. Anyway, Jamie's off the hook. Jamie, what did what did you look at <laughs> before going? Well, uh, I, I, uh, my research consisted on uh, of reading Forrester's books. Um, I, I just um, <clears throat> yeah just got into the books before my audition and then um, I, I don't think I did any sort of huge historical research obviously my character was cobbled together from several characters so my primary <clears throat> job was to work out uh, which characters in the book I could draw upon yeah this and is interesting because Sophie Figuera said and she's the one that did if you saw it on Twitter that little character of baby Horatio and baby Archie for you guys um, she said <laughs> as you played a character that wasn't in the books how did you create a deeper version of him um, and she also asked as it was your oh. first acting job is there anything you know now you wish you'd known then oh gosh so much um, <laughs> I mean look I, I, I knew nothing I, on my first day the first day of shoot I had I had it was the big old tracking shot scene over two decks in the Justinian welcoming Hornblower onto the ship and you know the whole two it was a real ship and the whole two decks had like baby pigs and prostitutes and just it was just <laughs> no, you know, live, seen, yeah. live, livestock hundreds of extras smoke and and I and I had to speak nonstop for two pages introducing him to this whole world. And here was me, the completely novice screen actor, literally haven't done a scene on camera ever. And um and my friend here that I'm introducing uh and showing around the ship has been on the biggest movie about shit of all time. And so I remember having to go up to it was a sound recorder. His name was Christian. I can't remember his last name. Maybe Johan can help me. Um, and I had to I had to say, I how loud do I talk? Um, mm. There's a I've got a microphone, and you're pointing a microphone at me. What 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 do I do here? Like, am I? You know, everyone tells you as an actor, oh, screen acting and stage acting is just the same, except on screen you just don't do very much. Well, that wasn't going to cut any mustard in this tracking shot because it was just all oh, hell was breaking loose, chaos, chaos. Anyway, he just yeah. said, just just talk to people as as they need to be talked to in this particular context, and we got through the day. But going back um, slightly earlier, um, yeah, no, I I realised that that my character was a function. Um, you know, Hornblower doesn't have a best friend until he meets, or, or or someone to confide in until he meets Bush later on, and I. I'd read that far, so I sort of knew what Bush was going to bring to the party. And I guess my job was to be that slightly less fortunate, less talented um, sailor 
until that moment and to um, mess up as much as possible along the way so that my friend could look really good and then I could... Uh, <laughs> oh, that's yeah. really nice. Yes, be envious. <laughs> is it, Alina, this is why everyone loves love. <laughs> Didn't I do that well? But then the, my big challenge was also the epilepsy. So the, 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 the real whole point of the original Archie Kennedy is this character who, who gets epilepsy, who is obviously traumatised by... Um, Dorian's character, who was called I can't Simpson. Simpson, the same. Simpson. So I'm the I'm, I'm the bully victim that needs a big brother, and ironically, I'm the one who knows my way around the ship, and he's seasick and is his first um, uh, posting as a midshipman. So very quickly, the roles shift, and he becomes the natural, capable seaman, and I'm the one that has relied on privilege and and, and noble birth to get to where I am, but I'm really not cut out for it. So there were these. It was a sort of inverse journey where um, I start off part of the family and very quickly am um, and sh- uh, you know the, the friendship bonds because we sort of need each other in different ways at the beginning but uh, yeah I wanted to ask you about the epilepsy scenes because I, as someone who didn't really do a lot of straight acting I always thought that must be the most horrible thing to do because it's like striking a line between well, getting it right and making it look almost comical or disrespectful yeah you did see it yeah exactly <laughs> You struck that line perfectly, though. No, no, no. Um, it, it's one of those things that I did. I did a lot of research in, you know, into epilepsy, um, and I had a bunch of videos from the Epilepsy Society, and they sent me examples of grand malfits and petit malfits, and, and and what they can be. And epilepsy is a massive. There's a massive range. People have seizures, and you're not even aware. They just suddenly don't talk, or they one eye goes, or it can be anything. But uh, Andrew Reeve is very clear that he wanted the full thing. He wanted the full body um, thing. So, you know, again, as a as a as a newbie actor, it was um, one of those moments. You, you go you go for it or you don't. And um, yeah, I guess I went for it. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure if it was uh, entirely authentic. I don't know what it's like to have a fit, but I had a go at emulating what I'd seen in these old VHS videos that I had uh, taken mm. all the way to the Crimea. From what you're saying, it sounds like there's not really scope for people to say, well, you did it wrong, if they're so varied anyway, as long as you... You noticed that, yeah. did you? Yeah, yeah I threw that in there. <laughs> Genius. Uh, Alina, do you want to do Samantha's question? Yeah, we've got a question from Samantha for both of you guys. So, while researching your characters and the time period, was there anything about the Royal Navy or French Revolutionary Napoleonic Wars that particularly intrigued or horrified you? Well, I was intrigued about how much alcohol each sailor consumed every day. Um, <laughs> it's something it's something ridiculous, you'll know, um, but it's something ridiculous, like 14 pints or something every day was a man's ration on the ship because you couldn't drink the water. There was no water to be drunk. Mm. It wasn't safe. So you drank small beer, I guess. Um, yeah, so facts like that. The facts kept on coming because Andrew Grieve, our director... It is a sailor and a lover of the sea and of all things maritime. So he, he would know why we tow the line and the square meals and the, and the freezing the balls of a brass monkey or whatever. Swinging all a dead things. cat. Swinging a dead cat. No yeah. a cat. Exactly. Um, all those things. So we had those wonderful contributions to the English language that we all use and we've discovered those every day. So personally, I love history. I'm a big Francophile. I studied French and uh, Italian, and uh, the French Revolution is always, for me, the most interesting bit of modern 
relatively modern uh, history. It's, it's so much responsible for so much of the way we think about humanism and equality and all the rest of it. And uh, I'm not saying I'm an expert in any of it, but and I'm not also saying you know the Horatio Hornblower novels don't. Uh, they're not. They're not Patrick O'Brien. They don't try to explain all that. Horatio's yeah. always quietly on the edge of the major historical events so that he doesn't have to rewrite history or get too involved in all that. But, um, no, I, I really enjoyed the, you know, the clothes, everything. I, I can't, I can't describe how excited I was the first day when we drove down to see this real frigate, you know, docked in this port. I, I also love sailing. I love the sea. And, you know, to be on a big budget television show like that with, uh, you know, major movie stars who'd worked on the biggest film ever made. <laughs> ever made. Not um, only that, but rescued Kate Winslet as well. Exactly. He'd done everything. And uh, so, yeah, no, I was super, super excited and intimidated to meet Johan and everyone else. And, uh, yeah, no, the, the, the historicity of it, the, the, the historical period being one of the most you know, romantic in, in, in British history as well. Doesn't doesn't hurt. No. Yoan, do you have any idea how iconic that line is in Titanic when you say, Is there anyone alive out there? Can anybody there anyone out there? Yeah. I think it's every uh, I think it's every other TikTok now that you see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To all Titanic <laughs> historians it was like yes. ringtones, <laughs> message alerts, everything. Yes, yes. No, I, I get asked to do it uh, all the time. Um it's uh yeah but, but i hear myself on the on those tiktoks often now people were sticking their cameras out the windows and seeing all the empty streets because of the lockdown and they've really? dubbed that <laughs> they, they they dubbed they dubbed that over the top uh, they really <laughs> i need to do, i need to google this now i'm gonna go on tiktok yeah, and have a look yeah, go, yeah, she hasn't seen look, titanic yeah. for a long time uh yo and what about you is there anything that intrigued or horrified you about the navy well you know what it, it, again going back to the the physicality uh, of it, uh, I don't think I personally would have lasted, you know, a week, maybe even a day on a ship of the line during that period. Um, such were the conditions, just the the seasickness itself, you know, the the tight quarters, the dampness, the the food, the discipline. The, I don't know. I, I just don't. I mean, the physicality of it struck me every day because we were physically sailing every day in that first season um in the first two episodes we were in the we sailed on the black sea in the crimea every day for about 12 weeks um six days a week so we got a real sensation of what it might have been like um to be in those costumes um to work under those sort of conditions um so on, on the show for example if you were to see um you know, a cow being winched off uh, <laughs> a raft onto the the indefatigable actually physically doing that, you know, on the Black Sea in the Crimea. Um, there's no CGI or anything involved. Um, so it was an incredibly physical, physically demanding shoot uh, day in, day out, uh, let alone the acting part of it. Just standing straight, standing upright, um, keeping your balance, uh, so it was a real baptism of of fire for for a young actor to you know to be thrust into that leading role and and to be surrounded as Jamie said with with greatness I mean people like Robert Lindsay who was a massive mentor of mine um, and every day you were so grateful for somebody like Andrew Grieve our director who was 
uh, very much like James Cameron, just just fiercely passionate about getting this right and uh, getting it to look right and feel right. Um, so yeah, there was. I mean, so there was a lot to be. Obviously, it's it's it marks the beginning of my career, and I, you know, to 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 have a path that follows you for the rest of your life. I mean, is 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 really a gift, and I, and I got it, you know, right out of the gate. Um, Kate, how accurate were they when it came to portraying the grim side of life? Uh, reasonably, I would say. Um, I think the thing that I noticed the most about Hornblower is that you actually see splinters. So if you watch, I don't know, Pirates of the Caribbean, you see the fights and there's not, there's no sort of blood or gore or anything. But, um, Master and Commander and Hornblower have both done it very, very well. You've got people being flung around all over the place. Um, I think there's a kind of tendency to romanticize these sort of battles at sea and everyone kind of being, doing their duty, doing what they should be doing. Um, and Hornblower did it very well. Um, and actually in terms of historical accuracy for kind of where they were around those historical events, like you said, um, that's covered. They cover the press gangs. They're covering taking the merchant seamen off the East Indiamen. Um, there's just, there's plenty in there that ties in with lots and lots of naval history aspects. Um, we, so the first episode, the Even Chance starts in 1793, 94, yeah. doesn't it? Um, and I, it's quite a good, um, impression that you get of the Navy being bored out of their minds. How accurate is that? And why, what have they <laughs> been doing and why are they sat there? Pretty accurate. So most of the Channel Fleet at that point, um, they started a blockade of Brest in around 1793. Um, but a lot of the time prior to that, they were just stuck in Spithead, which is where Hornblower famously got seasick, um, which is actually kind of just off the Isle of Wight, sort of between Portsmouth and the Isle of Wight. Um, very sheltered there and very flat seas. So <laughs> no excuse for any kind of vomiting. You would struggle to get seasick there unless it is the very roughest thing, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, you know, it's peacetime. Plenty of people were laid off. There wasn't much to do. Um, I guess the reason you see them going out with the press is because in peacetime you had to really go and find these people ready for when the Navy went to war. Um, and thankfully, Britain had quite a good merchant fleet. They were very well trained. So you're always looking for the merchant sailors because you could kind of go into these port towns and pick them up when the ship came in, which is, I guess, why they were looking for the East India convoy to come in. Um, mm. You wouldn't, I think there's a myth with the press gang that people would just go and drag men from their beds and drag them from their weddings and drag them from the pub um, and take them off to sea. And the landsmen were useful because obviously they hold on lines and they could bring in sales and things but you wanted trained seamen more than anything else yeah um <laughs> yo and one thing you did well was the completely miserable look on your face when you first climbed a boat <laughs> um, and simon jones wants to know were you really seasick actually you know you know what um i i got the sensation every day but i soon got over it because i i had so much work on my plate i mean uh, uh, and somebody taught me very early on just to look at the horizon and that would always balance your your head out. Um, but unfortunately, sadly, the one person on the first season, on that first uh, episode uh, out in the Crimea, that really got properly seasick every day, God bless him, was, was Neve, our yeah. uh, director of photography. Yeah. He 
honestly couldn't cope with it at all. And he was they, green, wasn't he? Throwing up over the oh, all day. Oh, poor guy. Day. He was he was a mess. So he <laughs> he would he would manage to you know to to walk over and, and take a, a reading, a light reading, and <laughs> give some give some commands, and then go back and, and be over uh, the edge of throwing up, bless him, or sitting in a corner shivering. And uh, uh, so, um, no, luckily I, I didn't suffer as greatly as, as some, but it was always there. And the, and the worst part for me was getting off the ship at the end of the day because we were out at sea for all those hours. Um, and you'd come in under the cover of darkness, and it was getting the sea legs once you were back on dry land. That was uh, the hardest thing to cope with. It was felt as if you had a couple of drinks already. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I must, I must sing Johan's praises here. He's he's always very modest, but being in every single shot of every single scene for twelve weeks on the sea all day, every day, and you couldn't. There's no trailer to go to. There's no comfort. <laughs> You know, you literally just have to go below decks and find a, if you had 10 minutes, and he, that's the most he ever had. Um, it's pretty extraordinary. Um, I was going to ask a bit later on about, um, ah, which one where you're in jail. That sounded, but you're, you're dying, Archie, but, um, that must have been a breeze that was just lying around in the sunshine filming that. My my whole life was a breeze. Uh, (laughs) I worked, I worked one in every three days. The rest of the time, well, in the Crimea was tough because there was nothing to do. So then you go a bit mental yeah. because all I wanted yeah. to do actually was to be on set and just be part yeah. of it. And I would have happily just gone there every day and just sat around, but that's not the dumb thing. It's not cool to be too keen. <laughs> so um, I didn't do that. I left it to Johan to be in every single shot, which he did admirably, I thought. And, but when we got onto dry land, so that's the, um, <clears throat> the second two films and the third two films, which we shot respectively in Portugal and then in Menorca. I mean, I just couldn't believe that you got paid to go on what's basically a summer holiday with your mates. So at that point, we're all really close friends. Uh, they would work extremely hard. I would pop in for the odd scene every couple of days, <laughs> hot, hot off the golf course or the beach or the pool. And, uh, yeah, all I can say is, um, you know, it takes everybody in the team to make a great team. And uh, Johan was very fortunate to have such committed actors around him. <laughs> Sounds a little bit like me and Alex sometimes, you know. Yeah, pretty much. I'm Yoan, though, just for the avoidance of doubt. Um, <laughs> I just want to ask you quickly um, about, we were talking about the look on your face when you first go aboard. It's a Justinian, isn't it, in the first episode, um, the the little ship in the channel. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, you're playing 17. You were like 25. I, think. I do like the way you played a, a completely green. Was that difficult, trying to play teenage um, well, you know, I, I, I was a very late developer. I looked very young, I think. I looked very young even as a 23-year-old. So I think I, I barely sort of passed for a 17-year-old. Yeah. Um, but no, the, that, that miserable face that I had was, was genuine because it was, I think it was minus four sort of wind chill uh, in the Crimea at that time. Um, they were battering me with propellers, you know, big giant, you know, old-fashioned aeroplane propellers and chucking buckets of water in front of it uh, to create the rain effect. So there was, it was, I was probably like a drowned rat. I mean, exactly as it was described. Um, so there was no real acting required. Well, that, the, the, the scenes I remember about being cold and wet and in those clothes, that's the, when you talk about the historicity before any kind of waterproofing or anything like that, they're in wool 
you know, woolen garments and leather soles running around these ships. That's why they had bare feet, I guess. If you had to climb any rope or whatever, you, kicked, you, you wouldn't be in those shoes. And we were officers and obviously didn't climb too many ropes. But I remember a sequence that we did at the end of the first two films in Pinewood when we were in the tank doing a shipwreck sequence. We went every day to the tank in Pinewood. We'd start shooting when it got dark at about 10 at night and we'd shoot until four in the morning when it got light. And we were drenched with wind and rain machines. And again, one of the moments I want to tip my hat to to this guy because you never lost it. You never lost it. We were freezing all night long. Just totally wet, drowned rats getting, there was a, there was a, there was a, a wave machine and a massive water slide of, of like, I think it was several tons of water that would come down this huge ramp and then it, it had an up, 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 upshoot at the bottom. So the water launched into the air in massive volume and then just twatted us. <laughs> and it happened about 50 times a night. And then you oh, yeah. just got warm and dry in some room and they told you you had to go out and do it again right, and again. And we did it for a week, yeah. every night. Yeah, we did. Yeah. In those costumes. And I've got to say, those sailors, they've yeah, got my respect. Hard, yeah, hard, hard men. Jamie, you mentioned uh, the costumes. So tell us, what is your favourite or least favourite part of the naval uniform? Well, I think they look amazing. Um, I have to say... Just aesthetically, I think they're the best military costumes I've ever worn, apart from that bicorn hat. I find that an impractical <laughs> item of headgear. Oh, you wearing really hoping that you all knit those when you left. <laughs> no, I don't have a hat, no. So, um, no, no. I, I, I love the britches, <laughs> love the, uh, the frock coat, loved it, love the buttons, mm-hmm. all very nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, the blouse, the stock, all great. Stock, very yeah. fashionable, very adamant. Mm. You know, I could do a new romantic yeah. and all of that stuff. Yeah. The hat, no. And then no. They, they were cardboard lines. So as soon as they got wet, they got soggy. Do you remember? And they would start yeah. drooping. <laughs> they didn't start the drooping, yeah. Because <laughs> obviously, the, the, I'm sure the real thing was a bit sturdier. But um, yeah, the hat, a bit goofy. But the rest, yeah. When they twisted round and they weren't side to side, but went forward, forward back. Yeah. Yeah, that was there. That was more attractive. Yes. Yeah. The the either side of your ears sticking out. No, that that's not mm. a look, is it? Mm. No, no. It's just like two big bison horns that you have to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At, at every opportunity, though, those hats came off. You know, there was any excuse to yeah. to bring them off in the scene. You would start the scene and then immediately <laughs> <laughs> to wait to take yeah, them off. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I wanted to ask you about the ponytails because I really hope that they were like Rodney Trotter style clip-ons that you all had. No, 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 no. Okay, so we're going back 25 years now. So it was the advent of the beginnings of hair extensions. And back then, the hair extension, you needed two people to put them in. And they were plastic uh, wefts of, of hair. I think it was called monofiber. Was it called monofiber? Something That's like right. That? Yeah, something. Yeah, like it, was, it was man-made. Yeah, it was man-made, wasn't it? It wasn't uh, real hair. And then they had to be woven in, in individually. So every each session to try and put this cue back in would be like, I don't know, an eight-hour job. Yeah, I mean, and we we narrowed it down by the end of the the last um, couple of episodes. They, they they perfected the technique, but that first session, ah, oh, it almost killed me. It was, and they kept falling out, of course, because of the conditions and then the seawater. 
So there was endless, endless. If I had a moment of downtime, you know, I'd have a knock on the door from the, the makeup artist uh, asking me to refill these. Uh, Are they the moments when you almost did lose your shit then? <laughs> yes, you're just having 10 minutes to yourself. Can we put some more? Um, they go, Jamie, he's not perfect. There was a massive upside to them, though. We had amazing mullets when you didn't have the food tied in. Like amazing, amazing mullets. And I remember a couple of hair down nights where the hair was down and we looked like magic footballers from the early 70s. Brilliant. I do know, I was always, yeah, it just, just make me feel better. You don't wake up with your hair sitting in curls like that. Tell me that they actually sat and curled your hair to make it look that good. You know, well, well, uh, 25 years ago, yes, and my hair was a lot, lot thicker. And when it gets long, it does get curly. I mean, I had the same hair on um, King Arthur as well. It just, it just gets that lovely, beautiful curl. So there was, they, they would put some in the front just to, to help, you know, accentuate it. But, um, no, we, we would go that way. And especially in that sea air, it would, it was the best thing for it. So I, I, uh, yes, I, uh, I, I miss that. <laughs> you miss your mullet. <laughs> Kate, miss my curls or my mullet. Yeah. Kate, we did mention that um, Yoan was playing 17, and it is said in the show, isn't it, that that's, that's old, really old for a midshipman to be starting out, isn't it? Yeah, it's quite old. I mean, Nelson went to sea when he was 12, um, under his wow. uncle. Um and a lot of, so I'm actually looking at gunners in my own research, and I've got a lot of midshipmen who are very, very young, mm-hmm. um, sort of 10, 11, 12-year-olds. Um, and I think by the time that they had to go for their examination for lieutenant, they had to have six years' experience at sea, six years' sea time. Um, so a lot of them joined quite young um, as either sort of captain's servants or master's mates and kind of worked their way up. You had the little, the little um, powder monkeys as well, didn't you? Were they? Even yeah. So I've actually got one of my gunners. His uh, wife sent his son away to sea to become a powder monkey, and then he actually worked his way up, became a midshipman, um, which is quite a nice little story. So Sean Bean and that they got a two-week crash course in Napoleonic warfare for shot, where they literally had classroom sessions and everything. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 just crazy. Did you, um, so Baggers basically asked, did you guys get that kind of training um, on period naval warfare sailing? Not, we were meant to, weren't we? We were meant to go on a sail in the UK on a tall ship before we went out and something went wrong. I think there was a plan to do that. Am I right, yo? The Astrid. You know what? A boat called the Astrid rings that sticks in my head. That we were ah. going to do a trip around the south coast from Portsmouth to somewhere before we started. Do you remember that? Well, well, I don't. That, that, you've got a much better memory than I. No, I, I don't remember that at all. We were supposed to go out, were we, and, and have a little jaunt and, and learn about it and We were meant stay to do on. something. We were meant to do something, and it didn't, yeah. happen. It didn't happen. Did you, did you have anything? No. Did you have anything special? Like, no. Not, not, that I could, not that I can remember in terms of... No, it, I, I think I, I keep saying that it was a baptism of fire because it, I think we were just launched into this. I don't think we did have no. that much training. Maybe... And then some of the stuff that we physically did, again, to, to bring it back to the actual filming, I mean, the, with the way the health and health and safety is set up now, we couldn't do half the stuff that we did, even three quarters of it. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, having having actors, you know, row boats 
out at sea in the middle of the sea without divers or anybody in the water, diving into the sea <laughs> from the deck from the deck of the the Indy um, into you know freezing cold mm. water. Um, and only been able to do it twice because it was so cold. You know, you you really was numb. Cold. Yeah, properly cold. Um, yeah, no, the um, I mean, there were a few. I mean, every every day was fraught with an element of, of danger in that sense. Um, just the the simplest of things of getting on and off the the boat in the mornings, you know, and some evenings you'd come in and there was a storm brewing and just tying the, the ship off. I mean, and, and we mustn't forget, on our show, that ship uh, is called the Grand Turk. That ship was built purposefully for the series. Yeah. It was built out in Marmaris and then sailed across the Black Sea to the Crimea. And I remember talking to Andrew Benson, our fantastic producer, saying, you know, that was <laughs> not to put any pressure on me, but he said... When we were watching it come in it's across the horizon, he said, "That's for you, mate. That's for you. That, that, four, <laughs> that four that four million pound ship there that we've just built, especially for this show. That's all for you. So don't fuck it up. Yeah, <laughs> no pressure. Yeah. That's incredible. I didn't know that it was actually built purposefully for the show. That's just wow. Yeah, yeah, it, was. it is extraordinary. Yeah, it was. I mean, and. Uh, so let's let's imagine, right? We've we've all watched Game of Thrones, right? And that's no. one of okay. Or we, <laughs> Everyone or we, except Lena has yeah. seen it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but in terms of budget, right? I don't know what the budget is on that show, but it's a very very expensive, rich and delicious show. And we have to remember, <clears throat> at the time, Hornblower the series was the most expensive show ever made for British television, certainly, if not in America as well. It was a massive, massive co-production. Um, now to, to look back at it, it, you know, you can see, um, you know, the, the early advents of CGI and what we could afford, but it was still a massively expensive show. Um, and I remember talking to, um, to, to Delia Fine, who, who told us, that when she saw Master and Commander, she said, well, one, like, two-minute sequence of CGI was sort of the equivalent of uh, an entire episode of, of Hornblower. I mean, that was the difference. You know, the, that, that was a big $100 million movie. But our show at the time was, was one of the most expensive shows ever made on television. So, And, and you can see it up on screen. I mean, I think um, it still holds its own. Um, and we, we shot for several, several days to, to make a lot of those action sequences. As Jamie said, endless. And, and, and the artistry of those models that we had. They were amazing for, for So there was a so seven on, meter long model, wasn't there, that they filmed some of the long shots on? Yeah. Well, there were several models, because yeah. several of the ships, they, they had a full naval battles in a tank the size of like a, like a small park pond. And they had, I, I went down there yeah. a couple of times to watch and they're creating the ripples of the water. They're creating the wind. They're creating everything. And the cannons are firing. There's no, there's very, very little CGI and especially in the first two films. I'm not even sure mm. how much there was at all, but they were, they were, they were orchestrating these big choreographed naval battles with real water, real models. There's very little trickery. A blue screen in the background was about all, so that's CGI, but it was in the early, early days 
um, of CGI. I remember we were talking about Titanic on the set and about how you put in breaths, didn't you, to, to create the cold look. Yes, the they had, yeah, yeah. And I remember that blew my mind that you could, at the time, that was so ahead of its, I mean, that was the first time it had ever been done. So we were right at the beginning of it and we didn't have access to all of that. So it was practical. The whole show was basically, you know, we did it. It was practical. The first series of Hornblower is, I think it's pretty much bang on made exactly the same same time as Air Force One. And do you remember how rubbish the plane looks when it goes down at the end? You can tell it's a cartoon. That to me is always an illustration of how early days 1999, 2000 was for CGI. So the fact that you didn't, have what Game of Thrones and and even Master and Commander a few years later had um to to have it all as practical um I'll just pause because Liz do you want to come in if because Delia's daughter's sitting in on our call so if I mean it's up to you Liz if you'd like to come on um we have um hey, there she is <laughs> hello haven't changed at all we have actually, you've mentioned Delia Fine and her daughter Liz is sitting in on the call um, because she was so excited we were getting together with you guys. So, I mean, this project meant a hell of a lot to your your late mum, didn't it? Yes, it really, really did. Um, she loved the project so much. She was so passionate about it. She really loved the Forrester books and was so passionate about the entire time period, um, loved naval history, um, and was really a history buff um, herself. She loved the books, um, was a Master and Commander fan, and really um, was passionate about the entire series and felt that, you know, it became her family as well. Um, you have you have lots of memories of being on set, don't you, and going to see her on set? Yes, I was very lucky that um, she let me travel with her, and um, I got to spend some time visiting and tag along for a little bit, so yeah. kind of got to know and think of Yoan as a... Big brother yes. of sorts. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, yes, It's an incredible legacy that she's left us, and, and not only that, but I I didn't know until a few hours ago when we were talking that um, she was behind Pride and Prejudice as well, which I, I remember getting booted out of the front room every Sunday night for that, so my mum could be alone with Colin first, but another one that's just, like, massively imprinted on people's hearts, isn't it? Yes. I mean, yeah. who wouldn't want to be alone with Colin first? <laughs> <laughs> She was a wonderful and welcome presence on the set, uh, your mum, Liz, um, because it was a very male environment, uh, very male. We didn't really have any actresses in the first like three or four scripts, male producer, male director. And I have to say that, you know, her maternal instinct for this show was really needed and really welcome. Mm-hmm. And it was always, we were always looked forward to your visits um, because the love was just obvious for, mm. for for the material mm. from her, and it was much appreciated by the cast. I know mm. that. Mm. Well, she she really cared about each one of you, and she was so sorry to kill you off. And Scarlet Pimpernel. She killed you twice, apparently. (laughs) But but she genuinely, I I believed her when she said she was sorry. (laughs) Really sorry, Jamie. I've been killed off many, many times, and um, uh, she she did it in a lovely way. Oh, so let's 
let's talk about villains um because one thing hornblower gave us was an outstanding array of dastardly horrible villains so simpson was first that was dorian healy so he was a pantomime villain if ever there was yeah. one wasn't he total shithousery for no reason whatsoever um i loved him <laughs> uh, in the frogs and the lobsters you had that snivelly french officer um anthony share was brilliant and he's not even remotely french is he he was a brilliant dirtbag don't think anyone was sorry when he got off by his own guillotine uh no, mutiny and retribution you had hobbs which is philip glenister um but i don't think he was necessarily he was one of the best wankers on television but i think he wasn't a villain yeah. as such was he he came around in the end and the same for david warner because uh, there's another titanic connection for you because he sunk with it twice um but he mm-hmm. was a sick old man uh however much i wanted to kick him down the hatch myself in the end um and then of course you have wolf in loyalty <laughs> Beauty, the turncoat, um, and also Hammond, the elder, as well. Um, and Robbie McNiven wants to ask both of you who your favourite villain was in the series. Uh, um, wow. Well, I well, D- David Warner, I love. I, I don't view him as a villain because he was he was obviously an early onset dementia. Yeah, like, it's like I a sad old man, isn't it? Like it? Aged, yeah, he was obviously a legend in his day, but the mm. colour that David brought to it, the, the pathos. You know, even whilst he was being a terrible bully, you could see the, the terrified, uh, wounded um, pride that was behind it. And I thought the, the complexity of what he was... And the fear as well. Do you not think he nailed that, that could not knowing yeah. what was happening to him? Absolutely. And you know, he's just a wonderfully compelling actor. You can't... He, he, he holds every shot so well. So for me, he, he would be mine. But not a villain. No. So Rachel also asks because I'm actually interested. I want to know the answer to this. So it's strongly implied. <laughs> so does everyone? Yeah, <laughs> this, this think, question yeah, came in about thirty times. So it's strongly implied that Horatia was the one who pushed Sawyer, but never it's never been confirmed, of course. And Archie took the blame. Did the writers ever confirm to you you actually did the pushing? I always maintained that I that I did and that I had. Um, from just for me as, as an actor, I needed to to have that heightened sort of the stakes being that high that I had done it, um, and that I was getting away with it somehow. Um, which then gives you know that that the ending, you know, when Archie sacrifices himself, even though he's been shot himself and he's on his way out to sacrifice himself and sacrifice his honor. Um, I think it, it sort of heightened the whole thing if I believed that I actually had done it, you know, for the, for the good of the ship and for the good of the crew. Um, it just added that little puisson for me, um, to think that I actually had actually done it. It's interesting as well, isn't it? Because I think the first two, the first four episodes, Horatio is just perfect. That's the first slip. And then he's much more complex than the last two because he's not actually likeable for a lot of them. He's struggling with a lot of authority issues and stuff. Um, and I think that was the first time where you thought, oh, actually, he's not perfect. And I kind of like that because I want to just shove him down the hatch. Mm-hmm. Yes, no, and, and I and I think I, I, if we if we have to play out that he actually did it, I think I think he's immediately regretful and on the back foot, and you're right, not necessarily likable or honourable, or um, he does all these amazing things, you know, that the Spanish fought and everything, but uh, and, and saves the crew in, in the battle, but um, in that case, no, I think 
he saw an opportunity and he he took it and uh, he possibly regretted it. Um, and who was your favourite villain? We, we, oh no, go on, Jamie. Well, we shot it in such a way. But sorry, I, I, I'm just I, I've just seen a, a wonderful play not before the lockdown in London called um, On Blueberry Hill by Sebastian Barry, and I, I won't ruin it for anyone. Um, but there's a moment, a similar moment in there where the character's recollecting something that he did in the past, which involves pushing. And I think we shot it certainly in such a way that it was ambiguous. Um, and I think Hornblower, the this is just for me as a viewer outside, this isn't what we were playing or what I really think. Hornblower is the kind of character that um, is so responsible for everything that he does, all his actions. He's, he's very conscious of his own duty, his responsibility to certain situations. It doesn't actually matter whether he pushed him or not. The fact is that he was there when he fell. And the sense of blame that he maybe didn't stop him, maybe didn't, you know, it's that kind of complexity because that's enough to have been there, to have seen this guy in the dark and we both were there and he didn't do anything to hold him back is enough. It's tantamount to pushing him. So, I mean, whether whether it was a physical push or, mm. or whatever, it doesn't actually mm. matter. He holds himself responsible mm. for not having done enough. Mm. It, that's just mm. my perspective mm. outside. But clearly it, it was an issue between Hornblower and Sawyer and I don't think Archie really, it, Archie happened to be there, but it's not, you know, mm. the stakes for the protagonist of the show have to be that he feels that he was the one not to yeah not to save his life. Um, and who was your favourite <laughs> villain, Yoan? Um I think I think the most dangerous that I felt were probably with uh, with Dorian Helius Simpson and with Tony Cher. Um I think they, they brought a sense of, of real danger and uh, in in the in their performances, especially Tony Cher, you know, the way he He's such a, a tremendous actor, and he's just on the uh, on the border of being a pantomime villain. Yeah, but, but it's so delicious and delightful, and he's so charming, but incredibly dangerous, and obviously um, had lost control. Of They're everything. both irrational, um, aren't they? I think that's why. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, right, okay. Oh, let's go back to heroes. So that first line from Robert Lindsay, "My name is Captain Sir Edward Pellew." What an intro. I know Kate adores the real Pellew. Um, how good was Robert <laughs> Lindsay? You said he was like a mentor. Um, how good was he? He, I love him. I think he's brilliant in it. Yeah, I mean, he, Robert Lindsay's, you know, he's a towering figure, um, within British, um, television, theatre, film. And, uh, just for me to have been on that set and heard him deliver that speech, um, we were meant to be awestruck by being on the indefatigable, the real ship of the line. This was our big opportunity. We're going to war. And then we got that huge rallying cry. Um, uh, yeah, there, there are two moments like that I can remember in my career. And that's one of them. The other one it was, it was on Battlestar Galactica when Edward James almost gives a similar kind of speech to a beleaguered crew who are uh, in a similar situation. And um, yeah, it was it was towering and delivered with the voice that a theatre actor brings and uh, it was very exciting. It was one of those days that mm. uh, I, I, I still remember what it feels like to stand there and the excitement. How much did you learn from him, Yoan, as a young actor? Oh, everything. Everything. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to describe because um, I had done things be- before Hornblower, but to, to step into the shoes of, of, a, of a leading man 
for the first time at such a young age with such huge responsibilities. He was a real mentor. He put his arm around me from the get-go and held my hand and taught me screen acting techniques, everything. And he was so generous and kind and, yes, a, a superstar. And I was in awe, and it helped that dynamic of that relationship. I mean, we had it for free because he was a young actor looking up to this extraordinary older uh, actor and experienced actor and brilliant actor. So that always inf- the relationship you have off screen, I think, always informs the relationships on screen um, by osmosis. So that existed uh, from, from the get-go. But I, I really, you know, and, and he's incredibly naughty and funny. And so the, the more confident I became, the more relaxed he became, um, being my mentor, he would, you know, nod and a wink and, and show, show me his chewing gum that he was chewing and hiding, you know, off camera. All these little silly little things to try and make me laugh or make me corpse. So, I mean, yes, I mean, he's, if I had to count on, uh, on somebody that was a massive, massive influence, um, you know, he, he was, he was that to me on, on the show. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Talking about Captain Pellew, Donna Doggy asks, Captain Pellew saw something special in the young hornblower from the very beginning. He knew the young lieutenant would be a leader of men, wouldn't he? Yes, Yes, I think I think that's um, the you know the premise of that lovely relationship that that we had had. Um, that it's almost like this the son that he never had, the son that he always wanted. That kind of relationship, um, and I think he saw it very very early on, and and he he had to stride the very fine line of one um, of, of discipline and, and and the order of things that he couldn't be seen to be. Um, especially in this episode of Retribution, you couldn't be there be seen to be defending Hornblower and his actions. He had to put on a sort of a neutral cap of, of the judge in that court martial. But behind those eyes, there was a, a real uh, terror for possibly having to send Hornblower to the gallows. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, th- I think he possibly saw himself or saw somebody better than himself in Hornblower and, and wanted to rear him and, and guide him through this um, this career that, that uh, he, he had chosen. Um, I do think my favourite moment is that moment, because if there's one thing Horatio is, it's a little bit dense sometimes, and there's that lovely moment at the end of one where Pellew is basically telling him that he's like a son to him, and Hornblower just doesn't get it. And he just said, yeah, just ends <laughs> it by saying, you'll understand one day. Yeah. 
I love that you're calling him dense. That's so good. He looked uh, with, with women as well. He was a little bit like because he's British, he's emotionally in- inept. <laughs> okay, um, so you've already mentioned the dangers of filming. Um, I, you've already mentioned that rescue scene with the getting twatted in the face with the waves. I want to ask you about that. Um, there's also as well. The fire ship scene, which I love, um, but looked terrifying. And also, I want to know that dive to save Paul McGann. Um, did you have to do it in one take? Because if not, that would have been a right pain in the arse to completely dry off before doing that again. This would have been. I'm trying to. Th- I'm trying to place myself. Uh, and, and I love this. You did so many we... heroic things. You can't even distinguish <laughs> anymore. Course of eight episodes. That... I think that must have been done in in a in a, in a protective tank sort of environment probably at Pinewood, that little sequence. Am I right, Jamie? Is that part of that week? I, I, I honestly can't remember, because was yeah. that after I was dead? Or yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, I think so. I think it's the kind of thing you would have done yourself, yo. I think, I think you'd have, like, you, I think you'd have tapped the stuntman <laughs> on the shoulder and said, you're all right, pal, go and get yourself a cup of tea, I've got him. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember where that would have happened, and, and would have happened at sea, or would we have done it in a, in a tank somewhere? Well, look, I, I mean, had, had that been the case, then yeah, we probably would have just, just dived in and done it, you know, yeah. and, uh, and just dried off and, and gone again i mean and uh, listen water uh, just an interesting fact water on those navy tunics you know really show so you could i mean the hair would get wet and you'd have to dry that off as much as you could but um you don't often see water on clothes on on camera so you can get away with doing another take if you can get the hair dry interesting Um, little factoid yeah. <laughs> um, with the fire ship sequence, I love that. That looked horrific. So I'm guessing some of that was models. How close to danger did you have to get with Dennis Lawson? Um, I mean, it, well, when it, when it came to fire, we yeah, obviously we would have had um, the special effects guys rig all that stuff, um, and you can put flames in front of the lens to make it look as if we're immersed within those flames. You know. Um, so when it comes to fire, I mean that we probably would have been very, very safe because um, we were probably doing it on a, a pre-built set that we wanted to preserve. <laughs> um, so there's there's nothing gung ho about working with with fire um, uh, on film. Um, Kate, what was the reality um, of fire ships? How much damage do they actually do historically? Is that a, a used tactic? A lot. Or? So they were used a lot in the Anglo-Dutch wars. Mm. I don't think there were that many by the sort of 18th century. I think there were sort of five, five, six, seven, something like that. Um, and they'd have kind of like a skeleton crew that sailed them because they were quite small ships generally. Um, one of them would always be a gunner. Um, I've actually got the instructions on how to make a fire ship if anyone is going <laughs> flying while they're on lockdown to, uh, to here's one I made earlier. Um, but yeah, they, they're actually quite difficult things to to rig up. Um, I didn't realise this. I thought you just set fire to a ship and then stuck the wheel on and set it yeah. off. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the guys kind of stayed on board till the last minute and then locked it off. But the gunner would rig chains and a fuse and rope and everything to kind of get it to spread throughout the entire ship as quickly as possible. It's actually quite a a clever thing, clever thing to do. Um, and most, I mean, most of the the ships that kind of exploded at the time, um, I think Queen Queen Charlotte's probably the one I can think of off the top of my head, were from things like accidental fires. So obviously 
if you've got a ship that's made of wood, it's going to catch fire incredibly quickly. Um, so, I mean, they were, they were quite damaging, I guess, if you were to put them into the middle of a fleet, but I don't think they ever actually kind of caused any huge significant naval victory. They were just kind of a nice thing to have. Um, and certainly, yeah, I think the last time we used one was 1809. Yeah. What sort of ship would they use? Because surely um, those ships are very expensive to build. You'd, 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 not, <laughs> you'd not really want to burn too many up, would you? Or... Um, I mean, some of them were actually purpose-built. So some of the gunners that I'm researching for my own research, um, actually, they joined the ship when it was commissioned, and a lot of them joined HM Fireship X or Z. Um, some of them were actually built as specific fire ships. Um, oh, wow. I don't know that all of them were used, but it, it's definitely an interesting thing to, to look at. This question's come in from Zach White, who was our historian on the shop when we did. Basically, it transpired in that that Sean Bean took everything that wasn't nailed down with him um, when they finished filming. And he wanted to know if you've got any cool souvenirs. And this is the point where Kate was hoping that you'd at least have run away with one of those hats. Yeah, I'm disappointed. <laughs> Um, I think the only thing that I kept was, uh, or oh, I was given by, by the armorer was a, a sword. Um, not, not the, the, the dress swords, um, you know, that goes with the uniform, but a, a practical sort of chunky black sort of metal, uh, sword. So I think that's the, that's the only thing really. And, and anything else that I, um, that I have or have been given, I think I've donated and signed my name to them all. So I, I couldn't even dig out the DVDs to do oh, no. my research <laughs> for this because I realized I'd, I think I'd given them all away or they're in storage somewhere. But, um, yeah, that was the only thing. It was, uh, it was, uh, the, the sword. Jamie? Yeah, I don't know if I have anything. Uh, maybe one of my black little hair ties to keep my mullet in shape. Um, <laughs> I seem to have a few of those lying around, I think, at some point. I, I tell you Your what, teenage I, daughters would have made off with those long ago. Uh, yeah, yeah, they probably are, yeah. <laughs> um, I, the one thing I have, which is very special from the show, is uh, a fan uh, I, doing something for Galactica years and years later. A fan presented me one day with the original continuity book that um, makeup artists keep from the first two films that we did. So, and in those days, it was all Polaroids. Um, mm. And so any, every time you did a scene, just to get the state of the makeup for each character, so you've got a script, essentially, with a couple of blank pages between every page where they stick in Polaroids um, of all the characters in every scene so that you could see who was in what shape at what point so you could match it when you came back to it at a later date. So it's essentially a picture book of the first two scripts. Again, they're in storage somewhere because I've moved house from... LA to France to now in London and we don't have any room here. So they're in a box somewhere. But it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful object for which I will, I will always treasure, um, because it is a, a, the real document. You can see people making funny faces, photobombing each other behind yeah. these Polaroids. Uh, so that's, that's the thing that's most special for me. It's funny watching Yoan's changing face in that. First there was terror. Um, first it was wow, then it was terror. Oh my god, what do I look like in some of those pictures? And then it was just like, I really need to see these. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I, I should show you. I should show you uh, one day uh, for uh, digging oh, out. I'd love, yeah, oh, I'd love to, to see that around. But yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, can I make a point on on that on the the aspect of the continuity of mm-hmm. things? Um, 
and this is a testament to, to what the script supervisor does. On uh, the, the second season, when we were in, uh, was it Portugal or then we went to Menorca? Anyway, when we were in Menorca, we didn't sail at all. We built a ship um, that was surrounded by a 270 degree view of the ocean. And we built the ship, you know, facing forward. And then we shot all the scenes on the ship facing that way, right? If you can imagine that. And then halfway through that shoot, we went off and did some uh, other sort of locations whilst they turned the ship around to have the stern of the ship facing the, the sea. So then we'd come back and do all those scenes all over again. Um, but the camera could look, you know, to the stern of the ship instead of the bow. Um, so that's a testament to the script supervisor having to keep all that, you know, written down and in her head to remind us when we came back and to shoot the reverses of those scenes that we'd done weeks previously. Yeah. That uh, it was all there and kept uh, and logged for us. Good memory. That's amazing. I forgot, I forgot that. That's extraordinary. Because that was all the reaction to the real boat being out all day. And they worked out that maybe this was actually a false economy and that we should build a land, land built set. But that was the flip side is that you had to do things like yeah. that. We had to pretend to be moving. So you'd have the first AD saying, you know, everybody tilt left, everybody tilt right. And we had to right, match yeah. his movement because obviously we yeah. were on a perfectly level playing field. I was going to ask you yeah. how much swaying you did on dry land to make it look like uh, you were at sea. Well, not none at all for the first two because it was all real. But yeah. after that, that's all we did, apart from on very small boats if we were out actually on the water. Yeah. And then the, the, the camera operator had uh, a mini jib arm. So the camera was uh, on, on this jib arm and then he would sort of bend his knees and go down with the jib and back up very gently That's throughout right. every take. I mean, Steve Murray, <laughs> yo, who I've just spent six, well, a whole year with. Um, Steve Murray was the name of our camera operator, a camera who did all that amazing work. And he still remembers Hornblower as one of his favorite gigs of all time. Oh. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, the the invent yeah the inventiveness and the brand uh, you know how how practical we had to be on a daily basis to to make this look real and and ironically I think perhaps it looked like we were sailing more in those episodes where we were on dry land yeah. than when we were actually physically sailing because you know it, it is a, the medium is film and it's much easier to control the environment on dry land than it ever was to actually physically be sailing, you know. Yeah. Um, so the shark guys are messing you with the business. He wants to know who would win in a fight, shark or hornblower. Adam's asking this because he's in this reenactment group and he smugly thinks that Sean Bean would kick your ass. But I'm going to say that I'm going to go with Yoan purely for the fact that because whenever it really gets tight with hornblower, the shit's guns open up on the beach <laughs> or whatever. Whenever there's 60 Frenchmen running at him... The boat will take care of it. So I'm going Hornblower. Sorry, Adam. What do you reckon, guys? <laughs> well, um, I mean, in a physical battle, I mean, you know, <laughs> no swords, no anything. Yes, I, I would, gra- I would grant uh, Sean Bean uh, a victory there. Um, <laughs> but, but four hands of whist, I think you've got him. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that was brilliant that you turned out to be a consummate gambler because everybody was like, what is Hornblower? He wouldn't gamble. Um, No, it was great. The argument, so I just, my funniest moment that makes me crack up laughing, and I think Kate agrees with me, um, is the argument between Charles Hammond um, 
and the other guy, the other Irish guy in the boat after the fire ship scene, um, where they literally end. This has spawned a hornblower drinking game. I don't know if you know this, but, um, the hornblower drinking game is every time someone says the word sir, you have to drink because those guys were like, we well, have offended me, sir. Well, I admire your personal capacity, sir. And they just kept going and going and going at each other. So it's now a drinking game. Um, but what was your uh, fun? What's the funniest moment in them for you? Oh, gosh. Um, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because oh, there's so much that's sort of full of gravitas and serious. And there's always so much at stake that those two just being silly. Do you know what other bit I love? You know where, um, I can't remember his hunter bashes up the fruit, his paddy with the fruit basket when you're all in prison and uh, yeah. Sherry oh, Logan brought Christmas. you, yeah, she brought you yeah. a fruit basket and he just kept wailing on it till all the fruit was dead. That was quite funny as well. Oh, I know, the, I know the funniest bit. The funniest bit is when I'm supposedly starving myself to death and Yohan has to pick me up in the rain and you can beg, you can basically <laughs> see through my sodden shirt that I'm quite a chunky lad. <laughs> yeah, do you know what, Levy? I'm just fast forwarding down our list of questions. Oh, yeah, well, take three. He's like, oh, <laughs> 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 it's, it's brilliant. You can see the strain on his face, Jamie. You obviously had to look pathetic and couldn't help, and you were like, you were struggling. I had to look twenty <laughs> lighter than I was. It was yeah. a terrible yeah. job of doing. And Yoan was pathetic in the attempt to, to hold up Did you have to do more than one take? How, were you like doing a day of carrying him back? Oh, it was basically a day of biceps for Yo. He was just out there. <laughs> yeah. One forearm was the last one of the day, and I was ringing wet as well, to be fair to him. It was Kristen Mara, thank you for that question. Yeah, she said yeah, it didn't look good. easy. Um, but yeah, that has not gone unnoted uh, by everyone else. <laughs> Sorry. So Leanne Havis wants to know what Yoan and Jamie remember as their fondest memory on set. And there's also a question on top of that where Karen asked, what was the worst? So you've got the best and the worst. <laughs> Well, I think probably the, 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 the favorite times that we had, we probably can't mention really on the, <laughs> on, on the podcast. On set. On, oh, specifically <laughs> on set. On set. Yeah. On set. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> the adventures that we had off set. Oh my goodness. Well, um, you know, the shark guys obviously filmed in the Crimea as well. So they have told tales about how it was, um, basically like yeah. Dodge City. And, yeah, uh, yeah. that they had to make their own fun. And, uh, a few of them admitted this morning to being completely ratted most nights. So there wasn't a lot to do there. There wasn't a lot to do. Did oh, you go to Yalta market? They seem to have yeah. bought a lot of useless crap at the Yalta bazaar. Well, there wasn't much there. They think they took it all. Cause like, someone being bought a they... hammer for half a pence and someone was going on about a gondola. Did you inherit anything from the bazaar? No, I think I bought a loaf of bread and a potato was all I could find there because the <laughs> <laughs> No, it really, it really was an insight into what people, after the system had just vacuumed away all the wealth mm. and it was all on mm. the hands of organized criminals by the time we got there. There was nothing. There was really nothing to buy. Because I, 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 I wasn't going to work every day like Yaman and I had to fend for myself. There was nothing to buy food-wise. It was, it was really quite um, bleak um, at that point. But I do have a memory on set. The, the, the one for me, uh, the, the time when we climbed to the very top of the topsail do you remember out at sea in Portugal? Yes. We had a helicopter with uh, old Steve Murray on his gimbal in the helicopter, flying around us as we were under full sail. 
Um, and it yeah. was the only time we, yeah. we ever went to the very, very top. Mm. And, uh, you know, the, the boat, the ship, I should say, would pitch and you'd be over the water. You wouldn't be over the deck anymore. And, you know, for me, mm. that was my first, again, I'd done a, yeah, done a few other things in that time, but very little. Uh, it couldn't get more exciting than that at that time. Mm. That was yeah, one of those days. That, that came in as a question, actually. Did you actually go all the way up there for that shot? Yeah, yeah. We, we, we did. We did. did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that, again, you know, that, that's a testament to, to what we were able to achieve, you know, back, back then with the resources and, and the nature of filmmaking that we actually physically went up there. Yes, we, we had a harness to, to tie ourselves off. But um, no, we were literally up there, bobbing back and forth. It was it was really exhilarating. Just and I remember the, the the helicopter couldn't get the, the 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 gimbal on the helicopter couldn't get close enough to get a tight close up of you, could it? Because it was moving too much. And in those That's days, right. the technology wasn't there. Nowadays, they can get a drone up and it can be as still as you like, and it can come right in. In those days, with a helicopter, so they had to then cut to you upper up a ladder in Pinewood, didn't they, with the, with your face in front of just the sky and to do the close-up that finally punched punched the uh, the show off, didn't it? Yes, I, th- I think yeah, they erected a sort of a green screen and just that little element of the topsail yeah. at the last bits and then sort of uh, wind machine and pretending, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, uh, that last little bit. But um, no, we it was it's actually Jamie and I up there, yeah, for sure. Brilliant. Um, Gemma from Jamie Bamba fans, they're really enthusiastic. They absolutely love you. Um, she says... <laughs> I won't have a bad word said about them. God no, bless both is, of them. She, <laughs> no, she is lovely. She said, I've always found the exchange between Archie and Horatio when Horatio is trying to get Archie well again in The Duchess and the Devil interesting. It's the first hint of any real animosity between them. Do you think Archie's jealous or just he's insecure and it's all coming to a head? Um, and she says, also, I appreciate you won't have time. I just wanted to personally thank Jamie for bringing Archie to life so beautifully. Um, the way yeah, he pushes through his anxieties and insecurities and comes out stronger has been a major influence in helping me deal with my own. Well, I, I think Gemma's answered the question. I think Archie's insanely envious of his uh, of his more more talented naval swashbuckling friend, and insecure, and super, you know very aware that he's a liability at certain moments, um, and he lets him down. And you know, there's that uh, guilt and self loathing that comes with not being the person that you wish you could be. And I think that's that's what happens. And there's a couple of moments when he 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 almost dies. <laughs> uh well he did die and then got brought back and then, you know, he wants to die in that in that prison. And then of course in the end he's able to have his wish and uh and he he, he does die and does the you know, the one thing he's he's proud of. Yeah but yeah, Archie's a you know, he he's not not he's blessed with all the all the enthusiasm he's like um he's like a, a labrador you know he's he's really enthusiastic but when it comes right down to it he just doesn't have what it takes to keep calm and have a cool head when it when it matters he's not he's not meant to be uh a leader of men i think you see him gradually realizing that as well in the episodes you're in but i did you know what i i can't remember how old i was i was a young young very young teenager i think when this first came out and i thought you died in the first one and when you came back oh the relief the absolute relief well, <laughs> no, you, you were right i did die and i was meant to die um so they had actually written you out after you got cut adrift by simpson in the first one yeah 
Yeah, yeah. And then, well, I don't know how much of this is true, and, and actually Liz might know more than me about this, but uh, I, I was told um, after the read-through, the very first read-through we did, apparently something that I did at the read-through, which is extremely surprising to me because mostly the horror shows, um, convinced them that um, they wanted to bring me back. And I think it might have been Andrew Grieve. I'm not sure. But at that point, when I was cast, it was it was to play a character who died after the first episode. Yeah, I mean, we're all glad you did come back. Oh, so, gosh, I mean, gosh. I mean, you know, the, the, Johan is obviously a very, very close friend and has, has been ever since and always will be, but the, he's not the only one. You know, Sean Gilder, uh, another actor that I just saw the other day, um, who played Matthews, not Matthews, his Styles. Yeah. Uh, Paul Poppy I haven't seen in a few years, but again, we used to live around the corner. Phil Glenister, I played golf with in London. You know, we're all still very close. Mm. And um, you don't forget your first time, and it was mine, and I, I never will forget it. It was it's very special mm. to me. And I, uh, yes, yeah, you know, still think back very, very, very fondly. They're all great days. actors. Um, we were just coming on to them, actually, to talk about Hornblower's division, because Styles and Matthews, uh, you work with them on all episodes as well, and someone specifically asked if you got Sean Gilder his role in King Arthur, but what were they like to work with? <laughs> well, sh- uh, this is uh, who Sean is uh, as, a, as a friend, um, as Jamie has just described. So on the first night in Yalta, in the Crimea, before we've even started filming... <laughs> We all had a sort of a gathering, a sort of a drinks gathering, and I was sat alone because I didn't really know anybody. And he came over, sat next to me, put his arm around me, and he said, you must be shitting yourself, right? (laughs) 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 And I thought it was, you know, one of the most generous acts that, you know, a fellow actor can do is just to spot somebody who's playing the lead, um, come over and say, listen, you know, don't worry about it. We've got you back. We're going to look after you. And, and, and so, so from, from the get go, we, we were a tight band of, of brothers. Um, yeah, Sean, uh, Aldroyd, uh, Simon, uh, playing Aldroyd, okay. Paul Copley and I, you know, we, we were together, you know, almost every day. I mean, that, that, they were Hornblower's crew. Um, and then alongside Archie and then, and, and, and Bush, um, so, so you can, and you can imagine, I mean, uh, uh, two actors who are brilliantly comedic actors, have impeccable timing, um, you know, superb drama, but all the comedy elements, I mean, that's just Sean and Paul riffing off one another and bouncing off one another and, and bringing those characters to life. They were, I mean, I mean, am- amazing for a young actor like myself to, to to stand opposite that and just react rather than having to create anything. They were just giving me so much on a daily basis, um, and we were we got to the point where we were able to improvise some moments together. I mean, that scene that Jamie described earlier about the the audition scene where Styles and Allroyd and Matthews are all sort of huddled away um, gambling on a on a rat fight or something. I think it was. Yeah. Um, we were able to improvise some moments in that that actually made it uh, to the screen. Um, and there was a lot of uh, admiration and respect between us as actors. And I think that reflected itself as the characters then, you know, the, the status that, that, that Hornblower had to play a very young boy, um, sort of ordering about these, these older, early, you know, stronger men. 
So in the frogs and frogs and the lobsters, you have a love angle which doesn't quite feature in the books. Do you think the series actually needed it? Because I know I know Alex doesn't. No, just give me more guns and explosions <laughs> and battles and stuff. You need a bit of love. Come on. I know Kate agrees with me. Just more fighting. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a military historian, so but unfortunately, to be fair, but they, the love. They did, they did you proud, Yoan. They gave you the girl from the, the Papa Nicole from the Citroen advert. I was going to say, there, yeah. was, there was a bit of excitement when we heard who was cast. Yeah. <laughs> she, was she not? I, like I said, I was very young at the time, and I do remember that every man alive was in love with her. Yes, we were. It was, it was so exciting. I mean, um, <laughs> it was part of British culture, wasn't it? I mean, it, it was, she was, yeah. So everyone, you only had to say those two words and everyone knew exactly the girl you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. Without knowing the name, she was mad. Oh, God bless television. May she rest in peace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we used to know what commercials were on and we still do 25 years later. Yeah. It was, yeah. yeah. But we had Sherry Lungi as well. We had Embarrassment of Riches. She was brilliant, wasn't she? Yeah. I yeah. could never, I couldn't figure it out till right at the end whether she was crooked or not. And I don't think you could see Hornblower couldn't either. It was great. He just looked baffled by her. <laughs> yes. Yes. No, we, yeah, well, you're right. An embarrassment of riches. I mean, uh, I mean, just, you know, to, just on a personal, to, uh, as a, as a young actor, you, you can choose to think that you know it all, um, as a young actor, or you can choose to, to learn and to observe and to, to watch everything that's going around you. And from my vantage point, you know, as the lead in the show, I was able to see everything that was going on. And instead of dismissing it all, I sort of lapped it all up and, and drank it all in and uh, learned so much so quickly. Um, so it really was a, a sink or swim experience. So when, so then when you're surrounded by you know, tremendous actors, um, you can, uh, you know, forego being, being jealous or envious of them and actually learn from them. And I, and I'll never forget this, this experience, you know, as long as I should live. Um, just speaking of actors that you got to work with, mm. this guy, he's, Paul McGann has had more mentions on History Hack than Adolf Hitler so far because of, uh, <laughs> mad, because of the sharp lot, uh, are constantly referencing him because he obviously was supposed to be sharp, wasn't he? And it was yeah. so sad, yeah. listening to the, the story of the day that he did his leg and everything. And then I totally yeah. forgot he was in Hornblower until I binge watched last weekend and I was like, oh, it's a happy ending. He got to be in that. Um, he was brilliant, wasn't he? He's great. Paul is a, a true, true artist and a gentleman and multi-talented dude. You know, he's, remember him, he'd be cycling up like 200 miles at the weekend on his day off. He would go off on his bike and just, he's super fit, Paul, as well. Um, so he, yeah, that, that sharp accident, I listened to a bit of that podcast just to get my head in the right space. And, um, yeah. that must have really heartbroken him because, you know, he, he is an athlete. He is someone who, who's very strong and very fit physically. And for him to, get an injury like that and not be able to pull his weight, I'm sure it really... Oh, they were saying as well that there was no one near him. He went down and nobody knew how... Yeah, well, yeah, football on a beach, see? Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, we were thrilled to have him. I, you know, I'm, I'm a huge With Nail and I fan and I just worked with Richard E. Grant um, and then I got to work with the man himself. So uh, I was I was giddy with excitement to meet Paul and we, we met in the departure lounge at Heathrow and then got on a plane, first time I'd ever flown business class, I remember, and we got struck by lightning uh, five minutes after takeoff. 
um, and the whole plane had the moment and um, the rest uh, is for history because we just thought we'd just dodged a bullet and we got tucked into the uh, free boost. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my introduction to McGann. McGann was great. I loved him, even though, yeah, no. you know, it, it was... Um, he, 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 he sort of re- represented the end of my character's journey. I knew that this was coming to an end because, um, you know, he was taking over as the, as, as, as Bush, who's obviously hugely important in the novels. Um, but I just, yeah, I learned tons from him, watched, mm. watched him, watched his work and just, uh, as a person, he's, um, mm. very gentle, soft-spoken, warm, cheeky, glint in the eye mm. all the time, presence and a lovely man. Now, what's lovely uh, about Paul as well, uh, because he's renowned for, you know, his character with Ned and I, he he didn't shy away from quoting the movie with us. You know, he he must get it every day of his life, but yes. and he got it every day of his life on our show. But he would quote it with us, and he would delight in it with us. Yes. Yeah. Um, so he never made us feel that we were oh, imposing on him. Oh God, I've heard that one before. He just enjoyed it every single time. He was so generous. Um, but so, he, he uh, would actually do all the other lines as well. The other characters. Do you remember he would do the Camberwell yeah. carrot speech? He would do the whole lot. Yeah. He'd do the whole yeah. film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Mutiny and Retribution, where we do get William Bush come in, um, and they're Jamie's last episodes. Mm-hmm. I love them because they have a completely different feel about them. It's all suspense and claustrophobia, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to swashbuckling and wide open spaces and seas. It's all very confined on the ship, and, and you get to feel claustrophobic and trapped by it. I thought they were brilliant. There were certainly my favourites. I mean, I didn't obviously have the journey that Johan did, but um, there were certainly my favourites. I I, I enjoyed the cast, uh, the the, the chemistry that we had at that particular time with Glenister as well, another, you know, wonderful actor to have have around. Um, uh, Yeah, and we were in a lovely part of the world. It was summer and it was, yeah, it was gorgeous. And you're right, that sense of us all being in this, this awful situation with this man who's losing his wits at the helm and the whole thing could go down the tension was just there all the way through and i think when you do get that sense of there's no escape there's no way out of this situation and we're in the middle of the of the atlantic sailing all the way to st vincent or wherever we were going um you know there's no land um there's 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 no escape you can't you can't it's like being in space yeah um we can't talk about those two episodes without talking about the simplest gift because all the questions were about it. Um, Archie's death scene. So Loz Talks wants to know, can you ask Owen and Jamie how they felt about Archie's death and what it was like to film it? I've always felt that part of why Archie is so beloved is because of his heroic sacrifice and it's immortalised into the mm-hmm. fact. Thanks. And then somebody else that they have as well asked how you felt, both of you, about Jamie being written out. Um, and didn't it have something to do with Forrester's estate because it wasn't in the books? Or um, I don't know. That was what one of them referenced. Hmm. Well, I mean, there wasn't any real acting required really for those yeah. scenes because, um, you know, it resonated for us both. Um, you know, Jamie and I are, you know, are best mates and we met on the show and it's very much part of our lives and our upbringing uh, as young actors so that that had a very significant moment it was a very significant moment for for us both um yeah so all those tears and sadness and everything it was it was effortless really it just all came very naturally to us um even though that was on a you know a sound stage that was a set that was built um 
I don't think we were out in Menorca. At no, we were in we were in Fulham Palace. It wasn't That's a right. place. It was in That's Fulham Palace. Right, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but you're you know absolutely right. Any any time, uh, you know, and it's happened to me a couple of times. Anytime you you leave a television show is not like a film. Uh, you, you actually develop relationships. You become a family. You become very close. And anytime you say goodbye, um, and anytime a writer does something for you where you get to lay down your life so that the lead character then can continue, um, you know, it's it's really, there's no effort required. It, you, you've just been given a gift, a, a simple gift, and you take it. Um, you know, I love working with Jan, and it, mm. was, um, it was sad for me as a person um, because I knew I the show may have continued to this day. You know, there's so many novels, you could have kept making it. and But I always knew that Archie's uh, shelf life uh, was not going to be that because of just the nature of, you know, I'd taken this character uh, from a few a few mentions in one novel. So, you know, I'd had my run. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was it was very special. I, mean, I remember one thing about that day, though. And a wonderful Welsh actor played um, David Warner's first lieutenant. Nicholas... Nicholas. Nicholas Jones. Nicholas Jones. Jones, yeah. Nick Jones, yeah. I have him to thank because... And this is another example of being a young actor on a set. And when you have the stage like that, when I had to walk down the middle of the trial to give evidence. And he came up to me after we did a rehearsal and he said to me, you know, Jamie, uh, he's very soft-spoken and very nice. He said, just, you might want to fall halfway through. You might lose your footing, stumble so that you can't keep going. Just something to show us that you're, you know, this is taking everything from you to get up. And I was like, you know what? That was really, really generous and really, really giving because mm. what he did is allow, he gave me the confidence to try something that I don't think I would have had the guts to, to do at that point. And it's one of those things, one of those lessons that once you learn as an actor, this is my stage, this is my moment. And I, it's up to me to make the most of it. And, um, Sometimes as a young actor, you read the script, you read the stage directions, and you think, well, I'm just going to do what I've been told to do here. And the director doesn't always have the time to help you out with these things. But this was a real gift from an actor who was watching me going, you know, this moment is so important, and this young actor could do with something else to make our hearts break for him at this particular moment. Mm. He gave me this little little tiny thing, and it's never left me. So every time I find myself in a situation like that, you go, no, there's only this, this story. I, I have it at the moment, and I can do whatever the hell... I think is appropriate with it. And then, you know, when you've got a set of a couple of hundred people and it's a big budget thing, you know, it takes some guts sometimes to do that, especially when you're very young. But Nick, Nick Jones, uh, yeah, thank you. Let's talk about loyalty and duty. So, Kate, how miserable was life for officers on half pay like Horatio? Um, is it the beginning of those? So they usually went on half pay in peacetime. Um, but, you know, I think by the end of the Napoleonic Wars, there was something like, 500 captains who didn't have a ship which is crazy when you think about it um and they just didn't have anything to do with them so they were either waiting to go to sea or they just commissioned and they just got stuck on this half pay list and it was like well this is where you're going to be for the rest of your life um they shouldn't have had all those fire ships and burned them away away. um and for lieutenants i think it was probably quite difficult because they were on lower pay anyway i think it was kind of generally frowned upon for them to sort of 
get married and have families that young because they just couldn't afford it. Um, and so when they went on to this half pay, it was even more of a struggle, which I think is depicted quite well, um, especially when Bush turns up and they're helping each other out, I think. Thank God, thank God you were good at whiz. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is as well, I think when you're on half pay, you could, I think you could apply for postings, but you didn't always get them and you'd sometimes be given them. But if you then refused that posting, it was kind of a case that, well, this is all you've got. This is what you've got. Take it or leave it. Um, but if you left it, then it wasn't really that good for your advancement and promotion in the future because you kind of turned down your opportunities, I guess. It's like that. being an actor. You know, there's about <laughs> five million actors in the world and only three movies. And uh, if you turn it down, then they don't come back to you. Um, yeah. <laughs> very similar. No wonder we were so good at that, Johan. <laughs> And um, guys, if it's okay with you, there's like three or four more questions. Is that all right? Yes. Yeah, please, please. Okay. Um, so we already mentioned a little bit further back, and these are the ones where Horatio is perhaps least likable for the fans, because he's clearly struggling with his new responsibilities across the board in the last two episodes. Um, and I love how this plays out with Mariah. Um, Julia Sawala is just fantastic anyway. Um, by the way, Yoan, what a naff proposal. Um, he went from being mildly embarrassed by her at the beginning of the first episode to proposing to her. But to be fair, I don't think it's a coincidence that his doubts coincide with her suddenly beginning to start calling him Horry at every opportunity. <laughs> Better than Horry. This is yeah. true, yeah. 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 That was a, quite a leap for the character, wasn't it? <laughs> Because he'd been pretty asexual until that point, hadn't he? Because he's just too busy with his career. Yes, yeah. I mean, he, he's sort of hopeless when it comes to those sort of situations. Um, and I'm not sure if he was necessarily art imitating life, but yeah, I mean, being being, <laughs> being a young man, uh, those sort of earnest sort of moments that he that he had, uh, you know, they they came quite <laughs> easily to me. Um, but I do, I do remember when he then got given, I think it was the Commodore, wasn't it? His first, uh, so this, I, I distinctly remember as an actor then, going from somebody who has been given orders and having those scenes with Robert Lindsay at the end of every episode sort of to tie the episode up, mm. um, and sort of biting my tongue for the entire series to now giving orders. And it was a very uncomfortable position to be in as an actor. Suddenly you thought you were going back to do another series and this is how it's going to feel and it's going to feel comfortable and fun and great and I know what I'm doing. And suddenly, oh, no, this is a new sensation. I'm the one giving orders to everyone. Um, so you ha- I had to embrace that as an actor. Okay, th- this this feeling of being uncomfortable is is real. Um, this is what Hormlow is feeling. He is feeling uncomfortable in this position. So embrace it and, and enjoy it. Um, so it, it it always I don't know that whatever you feel right and you sometimes you feel uncomfortable you've got to run with it and enjoy it rather than fight against it and try to make it feel more comfortable because that's what the intention is I think yeah no I think it was done very well because you were cringing with Horatio I think for most of those two episodes yes 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 it was um. But do I do I remember rightly that the proposal comes from, and I think I quote, a misplaced sense of duty, the proposal of marriage, that you it yes. doesn't, doesn't Hornblower think she's obviously got the idea that I'm 
meant to propose, I, you, you don't feel anything for her, but it's that duty that you think it's expected of you, therefore you have to do it. it I think that's what's in the books. I, somebody yeah, else... Yeah, Paul McGann tried to talk you out of it, I think, or tried to tell you you don't have to do this for these reasons. Yeah, but it's in Forrester. Forrester says he makes the proposal out of a misplaced sense of duty. I, I, I'm, I'm remembering something from 20 see, years ago. I see. This is why I'm annoyed that they stopped them there, because I'd have loved to have seen what happened next. And Liz is not well. well. <laughs> So, guys, V.E. Ross asks, which of Horatio's promotions from the end of each film is your favourite? I, th- I think that came at the end of um, the one in, in France, I think. Wasn't it the, the, was it the wrong war? I think it came at the end of the wrong war. That was, so that was the frogs and the lobsters in the UK, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. that's right. Sorry, I keep, I'm yeah. keep getting a title. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. So I it was renamed the, the American. No, was it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I see, I see, I see, I see. Um, so, yes, because Hornblow's pretty cut up about his relationship and, and losing uh, Mariette. And wow. I think he's he's so emotional about it. I think that's why he also can't... And he didn't understand what we were doing there because we weren't supposed to be there. Um, so he questioned his his orders that had come from Pelu. So I think he was sort of distracted by that at the same time. But yes, he was always so earnest about these moments, wasn't he? <laughs> you did have as well. You did that react. emotion of uh, trying that process her death in the perfectly British, emotionally stunted way with just a lip quiver. Yes. <laughs> Jamie's nodding like, "Yep, yeah, yeah, I've used the lip quiver." Yep. Is there any yes. other way? Yep. Is there any other way? No. <laughs> Can't, yeah. You can have wet eyes, but we don't want to see tears. No, yeah. no tears. Yeah, That's you had wet, wet eyes and a lip quiver. It was spot on. Yeah. <laughs> um, Samantha wants to know, how do you feel looking back at roles from early on in your careers like this? Having both played historical and sci-fi superhero roles and everything in between, does your approach to the part change with the genre and do you now have a preference? Uh, personally, the approach doesn't change, no. I mean... Uh, it, it, the genre doesn't affect uh, the way you approach character or performance. I mean, I suppose there are heightened genres, and I, but I haven't really done those. My, mine have tended to be, and you know, even when I did sci-fi, it was brutally realistic and very much um, to be played for the reality of the situation. So, no, not really. Um, the, the variety is what makes our career so rewarding when it when it works out right changing from different kinds of period uh from small screen to to big screen to stage you know all those things are great but um no i mean hornblower as i said earlier on will always have a very special place in my heart not because it was necessarily the you know the biggest role that i've ever had but the the first and and an introduction wonderful introduction to um you know, filming and, and what, and we were working on film, real film, you know, that, yeah. um, that, that, uh, you had to change the, the can every whatever number of feet and there were hairs on the gate and things went wrong and you had to reshoot them because the film was overexposed or went missing at one point. Um, you know, just stuff like that. Um, very special, but, um, no, in terms of sci-fi or historical stuff or I've done a lot of military stuff, I suppose over the years, um, uh, Hornblower definitely best best frocks, best outfits. I was going to say, because Yoan goes from those frock coats to a Lycra cat suit for the Fantastic yeah. Four. That's quite a leap, isn't it? Yeah. 
But that was, did you have any idea when you were fishing Kate Winslet out of the water that you'd end up being like front and centre on superhero films? Like when they first, because now they do them all the time, but that was quite novel then, wasn't it? Doing a comic book one. No, no it was novel. Um, and, you know, to, to go back to uh, what Jamie said about the, the, the process, the process is always the same. Um, but... What's interesting, the, the the idea of being seen in those costumes, I think, I don't know, I think I my the way my face is constructed, especially back then, I think lent itself to period costume dramas. I did several of them, mm-hmm. and I think I was, I think at, at the end of RADA, we had an evening where you were able to present like two minutes or four minutes speech, and I, I dressed up in a red tunic, uh, you know, a, a British officer on man. Um, for a speech from translations, Brian Friel's play. And I think that was the first time people saw the potential in a young actor. Oh, yes, he could, he looks great in a costume. So I think from <laughs> yes. then on, a lot, lot of those, I didn't have any agents interested in me until they saw me doing that speech. And then they went, oh, here we go. And then quickly wow. you know, followed by, yeah, Hornblower and Pip and Great Expectations. Um, so I, I was in and out of period costumes for a long time. Um, and then, yes, um, that lycra suit that we had to pull on that took about 45 minutes to put on every day um, because I they, they had a muscle suit underneath. Um, <laughs> which is, <laughs> I wouldn't admit that. <laughs> Even Chris Evans had a muscle oh, no. suit underneath, all right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, no, the... Uh, I don't know. What's what's interesting and, and wonderful as well about about having played Hornblower, it has followed me every single day of my life since then. And I'm so proud and excited when anybody comes up to me uh, who have you know fallen in love with the character, perhaps as a young child sitting on their father's lap or whatever, now still remembering um, those moments that they shared together, uh, watching these young men, you know, go to war, essentially. Yeah. And just you know i've done a, um a few of those uh, comic book conventions and conventions where you go and sign autographs um, or sign your pictures and hornblower is the biggest seller still yeah um, wow. to these comic cons you go to these comic cons for you know mr fantastic or you get invited because of mr fantastic but i take my hornblower ones and they're the ones that sell off wow. you know, sell up the, the quickest so um it's it's very rare uh, in, in an actor's career that you get to be known for one specific part, and I've I've been so lucky. I've been I'm known for a you know handful of parts. So, but I'm so proud that that Hornblower is you know is on top of that list. Um, I will touch in a second on where it ended and why we're all sad. But I I. I scuffed off all the Battlestar Galactica questions that were coming in from the sci-fi nerds for Jamie. <laughs> and, but I left one because it's so audaciously worded like an exam question. I just thought you'd love to answer it. Phil wants to know, what are the similarities in day-to-day life for an officer on the Indefatigable and the Galactica? <laughs> you can't get off either. <laughs> You drown or you explode. So uh, uh, the, 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 the truth is about both experiences. Well, this is funny that um, we were shooting Galactica in Vancouver for five years. And who shows up in his muscle suit? 
but Johan, who's shooting on the same set. So we went all the way across the other side of the world, and um, yeah, and we, we we were still side by side. So the Galactica and the Indefatigable and wherever Mr. Fantastic hang out are all linked. We were all together, but. Okay, so Hornblower finished in 1803, agonisingly two years before the Battle of Trafalgar, with Horatio just being promoted to post-captain and about to become a father. And, of course, every other question that came in for you guys was about the fact that people want more. Karen Marshall says, would you want to uh, try and continue the story of Horatio Hornblower? Johan? Absolutely. I mean, I think I was, you know, as devastated as anybody when we sort of stopped making them um i think it was an interesting time um uh because i think and maybe liz can correct me that there came a point where reality television had come into play and cared to come into our world um and i think for a and e as a network i'm not sure if they continued to do any sort of original dramas or be part of original dramas at the time I'm not sure if that was one of the reasons Perhaps, um, cause we definitely, cause it was such a big show, we, we needed two networks, you know, across the Atlantic to, to be able to make it to, to the level that we want to make it. But, but look, it's, uh, you know, I've had very, very pre- preliminary conversations with ITV, um, um, especially after having done Liar. I was able to go in and, and, and sit down with them and told them directly that, you know, it would be amazing to, even, even if we picked up one or two books and amalgamated them to make a one, one-off special, because in order to do it in this day and age, it would be, you know, a big expensive undertaking. Um, but the passion is there. I mean, I love the character. I love the books. I mean, it would be extraordinary to do it all over again. It would be. Um, and, you're fine. You're basically a vampire. You don't age at all. Yeah. Uh, you look five minutes older than 2003. You've got three <laughs> three options to shoehorn Jamie into a reboot, right? So you can pick which one you would go for. One is flashbacks, but I feel that this might be a problem because Jamie's obviously now developed rugged, manly good looks because Archie looked very, very young, didn't he? So they have to shelve the flashbacks. Archie's Ghost, a PTSD-based conversations. That gives you lots of creative license because Jamie can just turn up anywhere on a boat and you can talk to him. Um, but all round, I think the best option is a Bobby Ewing scenario where Horatio wakes up after duty and finds out that <laughs> death ever happened. It was just a terrible nightmare. What do you reckon? <laughs> or, or... Option, option three. I like option three. <laughs> yeah. Or... Or aliens land and I come off the alien ship and I've been abducted. Yes. Could there be. You go. Liz, there you're you in go. production. What do you think? Proper mashup. Oh, I mean, that's, that's a really tough call. Um, <laughs> I think I'll just sit on the sofa and watch. How about that? I'll what, what if you, you oh. would still want to hang around while they were filming, right? Oh, I, I would annoy them, yeah. <laughs> I would annoy them, yeah. <laughs> hey, it's me again. <laughs> I drop in on a Friday night and steer them up the wrong path all the weekend long and then go and film seasickness scenes on Monday morning. That's what I was. <laughs> JW actually said if they reboot the series, Alice has to be Lady Barbara. Perfect casting, I think I they said. Liz is nodding. Yes. Definitely. Yes, she would be. Yeah, so then. I mean, there's plenty of money hanging around, Apple TV and stuff now, isn't there? So 
everybody pick up the phone and ring Yoan because we need more Hornblower. Because I think, Kate, is it not right that we've now been completely deprived for 17 years? Master and Commander was the last big, epic 18th century Navy yeah. stuff. And that's that 2003. Great. So it's the same year that Hornblower ended. So it's frankly not good enough. We all need um, mm. swashbuckling swords. And everyone, everybody loves Poldark and Outlander and all these kinds of things. So yeah. there is definitely... Mm-hmm. Definitely a, a need or a desire, I guess. <laughs> Alina's yeah. got her hand raised because she desperately wants us yeah. to get the cast of <laughs> Outlander onto this as well. Um, yeah, so, <laughs> let's go Outlander. <laughs> so we will now instigate a committee to reboot Hornblower. We'll have a hashtag and everything. Um, so if everybody could actually, actually don't all ring ITV because then they might get really fed up and not do it. <laughs> 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 go and deal with it. But you can tell them yes, that there's yeah, I'll, thousands. I'll take it from here. Yeah, you take it from here. But there's thousands of people out there um, who have not shut up about wanting uh, Hornblower back, and, and it really it was every other question coming in was a would they want mm. to, b would they do mm. it, and c why has no one done it? So yeah, I mean it's a much loved series, and it's nice that you have the friendship born out of it between you um, and with some of the other guys from the show as well, and that it's a, a happy memory for you all as well. But also, Forrester wrote loads of novels for Johan's age, for the age he is right now. Um, mm-hmm. you know, mid- yeah, no, no, seriously. Well, he, he, he went, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but what I mean is, there are endless stories. Uh, actually, the midshipman, I think he got to those six or seven. I think he started off with Hornblower as a, as a captain or a commodore or whatever it is. Oh, okay. Yeah, and he went back and filled in the backstory. So, yeah, the, uh, some actually some people did ask, but yeah, and I don't know if you've read the books, Jamie. You have. Um, they asked which book if they were going to say to you, right, we will fund one two-hour episode. Which book would you want? You know what? I don't know them. I don't know them well enough, but I know okay. the latest ones are very interesting and political, and you know, I, I think that would be for Yellen and ITV to to pick one. But I know there are plenty of them mm-hmm. that are really made for for um, you know a, a man in the prime of his life, shall we say. Yeah, yeah, for a 39-year-old to pull on that red tunic and go and see ITV. Yeah, that's it. Somewhere in the Caribbean. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> novels set in the Caribbean. Guys, thank you so much for coming on to join us today. Um, people have been dying to get at this, um, and I know that it's probably the longest episode we've ever done and that none of them are going to care. They're all going <laughs> to listen to it um, and then complain it wasn't even longer. So thanks for giving up your time to come on and talk with us. Thank you so much for having me and uh, Yo. Great to hang out for a couple of hours as well with my buddy from the other side of the world under these strange circumstances. But um, yeah, love to all the fans who have stayed loyal over these years. And yeah. certainly the, the response that I had was um, really unforeseen and it's still going. And I'm just truly humbled. And especially with what we're all going through right now, thank you very much for this opportunity to revisit some of the history as well. Fascinating. Yeah, thank you so much for having us, um, Jamie. Just great to, to hear your voice and to hang out for a couple of hours with these our distinguished uh, friends. Um, <laughs> oh, honestly, it's uh, again just to reiterate what Jamie said. It's it's the character that I get recognised the most wherever I am in the world, um, and it's a character that I'm extremely, extremely proud to have played and to have represented. I mean. You know, Hornblower really reflects well on me. Uh, he <laughs> really does. He's, he's, I, I am I'm as uh, proud and uh, very grateful that uh, people think that I'm as earnest and as smart and as bright as, uh, as Horatio Hornblower. Yeah, but you've ruined um, that now with Andrew Irving. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, I have, I have, I have. But um, 
No, it, an absolute delight, and thank you for for having us on. I mean, it's uh, I I, you know, I I know just from you know, almost daily experiences that how much love there is out there for the series and obviously the books to begin with. Um, so this has just been a delightful, delicious little respite from the the crazy lockdown to to come and join you. So thank you. Sorry, I just want to thank Yoan's uh, wife as well for. Uh, yes, uh, Alice has been amazing. Um, she made, as soon as she heard that we wanted to do this, she said she was gonna. She had to take the phone to you and force you to sit down and talk on it. She was gonna do it, um, and she's also the reason that Liz has been able to sit in with us as well, which has been lovely because it's kind of like Delia has been with us here in spirit too. Um, and Kate, thank you so much for lending a bit of sensibleness um, <laughs> to our nonsense. <laughs> I think Hornblower is what got, well, I think I went on Victory when I was eight, and then Hornblower came out when I was ten. And I think that's pretty much what then set me down the path to where I am now, I guess. So it's been really fun. So the fact that she spends her time obsessing over 18th century documents is your fault, basically. (laughs) Unfortunately so, yeah. Thank you so much for your time. It's been brilliant. Are you kidding? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for putting it all together. Amazing. I really hope you get somewhere with ITV because, like Jamie says, there's so much more of the story to be told. It feels like it's half finished right now. Yeah. And you need to make everyone love you again after Liar. Yes. Don't talk about liar. Don't. Okay. I don't want to know. Oh. Alina, you have to watch Harrow as well. He okay. really yeah, that's a bit of that's a bit of light fair. Yes, a bit of fun. Yeah, there. it's a bit of fun, but again, he's not exactly hornblower in that. He's no. not like squeaky clean. So. Oh no, he's not. He's not a good. He's not a good uh, dad or a good husband or no, no. He's a good doctor. <laughs> very good doctor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks very much. Liz, thanks so much for coming on as well. I hope it was good for you to come and sit with us. And And congratulations for the podcast. Really great. Thank you. Thank you. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you, Ben. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.